Greetings. 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 Good afternoon. Today's meeting is taking place upon my initiative. I was contacted by a girl. She's a participant of our movement. Recently, she became a member of Alatra International Public Movement. She read all the books, got acquainted with the activities of Alatra International Public Movement. This has given her a lot of insights, has given the key to life. Well, unlike many of us, naturally, she has begun to share her insights and knowledge with all her friends and relatives. And naturally, first of all, with her husband, at that time a confirmed atheist. Her husband is a 36-year-old man. He is a scientist, a senior researcher at one of the scientific research institutes. All his life he used to rely on science, that is, he believed Darwin, the theory of evolution. He believed that everything living on the planet, it stops its existence here, including a human being, as for death itself. And it had formed by accident. Yes, and it had formed, naturally, by accident, yes. And he perceived death just as sleep. Like an animal. Well, in essence, yes. Has lived and died and hasn't left a trace. Yes, and he merely perceived all her attempts to talk with him on the subject of Alatra with hostility but only until recent times. So, she called me a few days ago and passed on his request to talk with me. Well, of course, I agreed. We got in touch and he told me about the events that he had experienced on the New Year's Eve. Shortly before the New Year, on one of the weekdays, he was driving his car on business. He ran out of gasoline, stopped at a gas station and left the car to have it refueled. While waiting for his turn, he drank a cup of coffee and went to the restroom. After that, he got on his way. It was daytime, a clear sunny day. He was driving along a country road familiar to him because he travelled along this road at least several times a week. Meaning, it was a familiar road to him, and about 10 minutes after he had left the gas station, he was surprised himself that he felt a strong need to visit the restroom again. Well, he began to search for a suitable place, but since he was driving in an open field, he began to look for trees, but there was nothing suitable. And then he saw a well-rolled dirt road ahead of him, which was just along his path, and went off to the side, and he saw a small wooded area there. For him, it was like an island of salvation. He went that way, turned the steering wheel, drove onto the dirt road, drove a little along this unpaved road, and suddenly he realized with horror that his car was flying down from the cliff into a very deep ravine. He came to his senses a few days later in a hospital. During an emergency operation, which was conducted by physicians immediately after he entered the hospital reception, he experienced a clinical death. So, the doctors were fighting for his life. In fact, they did not believe that he would make it, but fortunately for him, he survived. And he told me about this situation and asked me to convey his request to Igor Mikhailovich to once again tell people in detail 
and for people to think over Egon Mihalovich's words that, regardless of whether you believe in metaphysics or don't believe in it, it does exist. After all, what he experienced really happened to him. He was driving along a familiar road, he had an acute need, he saw in front of him, really saw the dirt road which he was driving onto, he really saw the wooded area towards which he was driving, and suddenly he found himself at the bottom of the ravine. After he had recovered, traffic police officers visited him in the hospital. They began asking him about the causes of this road accident. But he was really so shocked by all that he had experienced that he did not conceal the truth at all. He just told them straight out how it really had happened. But they were shocked by what they had heard. And basically, they also honestly told him that a number of similar road accidents had occurred in this place over the past two months. Well, just like a carbon copy, exactly identical. But all of them ended with a lethal outcome, and he is the only one, actually the first one, who survived after such an accident. Prone to analysis, this man, he began to analyze what had happened, to compare the facts, and he said that, I really know this ravine and this precipice very well. I know this road literally with my eyes closed, meaning this precipice and this ravine are visible from the road, but when I was driving, it was not there. I, he said, even forgot about its existence. I saw a dirt road, I turned onto it. I was driving to a wooded area. It was not a suicide attempt. But as a rule, they write it off to suicide. Yes, and this is the first thing that he was questioned about. And those previous ones were also written off as suicidal, that people get off the road, drive up to, head for the ravine. But here also, let's say, if we proceed from the perspective of science, it may be explained that a formation of, let's say, a refraction of light, some kind of diffractions, or something like that. Meaning, there is a trick of the light, an illusion, which is created visually. He could have seen the road there where it didn't exist, but it's not a fact that, say, there were no such phenomena as well. Yes, so if we approach it from a scientific point of view, well, mirages appear, and people see cities in the desert and say ancient events which happened God knows when. People see this and record it with their cameras, film it. Well, it could be explained like this. But it's also possible to explain it from the other perspective. When a person knows the road well, and at the same time he drives off the road, and there's a key point here. As I've understood, you emphasized this for a reason, and he told and explained that he had drunk coffee, had gone to the restroom, and then, suddenly, after 10 minutes of driving, again, there arises a sharp desire to go to the toilet. It is a sharp desire, yes, which he cannot fight with, but he is a cultured person. He wants to hide somewhere from the coming cars. This is a classic of the genre. Yes. Although, from the perspective of psychology, it nevertheless may be considered that a person could hide his desire for suicide and the like. He could have heard that there is a ravine and that someone has already committed a suicide there, right? Meaning, 
that it could affect him. But since he did not know, and there is an emphasis on the fact that when the police officers came and told him that he was far from being the first to whom it had happened, but he was lucky to be the first who survived, then he would not have been surprised by that if he had heard that before. Sure. In fact, he would not have told them this story in the way he told. He would have not have tried to investigate it. What is the point? I will put it this way. This is, of course, a misfortune. It is sad. But there is one positive aspect. There's one less atheist among scientists now. Yes, it is 100% so. Well, this is not humor. This is the truth. When a person of a certain mindset Scientists differ from others by the fact that they are prone to analysis, to studies, and the like. They try to really comprehend science, that which they call metaphysics, whereas it is also a particular kind of science and it requires much greater effort, attention and all the rest to study. Because one has to observe what escapes one's view and what one doesn't notice. One has to observe and analyze precisely one's own consciousness. And again, to find that position of the observer, which has nothing to do with consciousness. It is also hard. We can easily study everything we like, everything that we see around. It is not difficult. Although, one should also have certain skills, inborn abilities to engage in science. But it is much harder to observe oneself and to explore oneself. Therefore, if that's one up for our side, even with a sad story. But here are also positive factors, because every scientist who really starts to invest one's own attention and one's own experience, observation, experience, research experience, and all the rest, precisely by such scientific approach, say the study of what is called metaphysics, brings closer the time when the word meta will disappear, and only banal physics will remain, because this is precisely physics. But if we take simple examples, I will wander off the point a bit. We have raised this question more than once, that which hides in the shadows. And well, all this sounded also as a metaphor for many. But after all, there are indeed many who live in the shadows, just to be able to see it. Sometimes even the most ardent atheist, they are afraid of the dark. Not for the reason that they are afraid of dentists, and in the dark there can be many of them, of these dentists. That's why they are afraid of the dark. But for the reason that people feel that we don't see everything of what surrounds us. And often, much carries a threat, but not a direct threat of some kind of physical, say, impact or a life hazard. As a rule, all of these concealed creatures consume something that we ourselves do not notice that which we throw away is worthless. But there are also those who are not satisfied with little, but want more. And in this case, we came face to face with the classical manifestation. This is what Andrei was telling about. A person who had undergone an influence precisely at the level of consciousness. This is informational substitution. In reality, this is very easy. It is as easy as, say, for those who will put our program together. There are many cameras here, but only the picture from one camera is shown to us. Those who will do editing, they can substitute any picture, change it at any time. 
And in the course of the video, they always change pictures. But why? Here's a simple question. Why not show a constant picture all the time? I'm asking the director. Consciousness is bored watching the same picture. So you see, the director is saying, your consciousness is bored just looking at us like this. It must be made interesting for your consciousness. These are the rules, which are established by film directors and cameramen. Well, and everyone who has anything to do with this noble work. Let's put it this way. In reality, consciousness gets tired of looking at the same thing and starts to interfere with its advice. And when pictures change, then it perceives information, say, more deeply, right? In other words, a cut, a change, and already a person is not thinking about what he is being told. Instead, he pays more attention to the picture. But on the other hand, this is what weakens consciousness. Why? This is also an interesting point, actually. This change of scenes, a cut, change of pictures, it distracts consciousness. And consciousness perceives much say easier what it would reject. And this way, it is easier to explain something to you, and it will be perceived quicker, with less rejection by that same consciousness. Yes, this is also a tool of manipulation, psychology, and everything else. Well, you've said that there is now one less atheist in the scientific community. This is really so, because in addition to what happened during the accident, or rather what led to the accident, this man also experienced clinical death. And the experience he gained in the course of clinical death, for him, it became an absolute revelation, an insight. And these two events affected him so much that it made him completely reconsider his views on life, meaning his world outlook has changed. This is natural. Nothing affects us, say, our consciousness, like facts. Yes, and he... Consciousness argues with everything, but the fact remains, even though consciousness challenges any fact, but the experience which you gain yourself, you cannot argue with it. Yes, consciousness is powerless here. Of course, that is why the spiritual work on oneself is really so important. No matter what we tell people or how we show it, explain it, if people will not work on themselves, really work in a spiritual aspect, then for them all this remains, well, let's put it so, there's absolutely no difference between reading the books by Anderson or the book Alatra. Information for entertainment, well, the only thing that might be is that someone will encounter something at some point, will think about it and will recall. But what's the use that they thought about it, recalled it? Still, they did not accept it, did not work on themselves, they don't study their consciousness, they don't observe how the system works. If a person does not know that he is a personality, that he is precisely the one who observes the work of the system, if a person doesn't realize that the whole complexity is exactly in transfer of this information, which comes precisely this information, first of all. After all, this information, it opens up at the level of neurons of our brain. And it is precisely our brain that forms a picture in this frontal part, yes, which we can observe. These are hidden pictures, and later, 
These pictures are transferred to the personality as facts, and so on. That is a very complicated chain of these distractions for our personality, coming from our consciousness. If a person doesn't understand this, doesn't see it, if he doesn't realize that consciousness is not him, he will advocate for his consciousness. How does one manage without consciousness? Well, really, it is impossible without consciousness. We lose three-dimensionality at once. The personality, I'm saying once again, it doesn't perceive the three-dimensionality. It perceives information as a whole. If we take any situation, anything, and the freer personality, it perceives everything as a whole. It doesn't need, it doesn't see it by fragments and cannot perceive it. The personality doesn't need it, and in general, practically nothing exists for it in three-dimensionality. However, for consciousness, three-dimensionality, this is just a very important fact, because nothing else exists for it. And in this particular case, it is precisely our neurons, our brain plays a role of such an important mediator. Although a mediator between the personality and consciousness, it is the primary consciousness, but the secondary consciousness, it is more of an informational structure which, as it was already described more than once, there is a program, consciousness and personality. Those who watched, did watch. Those who are willing, will watch. All this is described there in detail, but the brain is also a very important tool. Let's say, in this case, in order to create pictures so that to give the very physical perception of presence in this world. Because if we take away the brain, consciousness remains. Here's an example. Let's assume that a person suffered a stroke, quite a massive stroke. He doesn't feel his body. Sometimes he even loses vision and hearing, and the person finds himself in a cocoon. But everything remains, consciousness remains, emotions remain. That is precisely that state which people acquire after death, the primary one. But he doesn't disappear anywhere, and consciousness remains. An assessment of this remains, and the one who provides that consciousness with power, meaning the personality, remains. In precisely the state which a person keeps after death, the contact with one's own consciousness, it is called the state of subpersonality. Or as it was told before, a person gets into hell, that is hopelessness, irrevocability. It is there where it is impossible already to change anything. This is a serious condition. And as I understand, our friend has experienced something like this. That is why he was so impressed. That is, to see and to gain experience, especially of something that you used to deny. Well, of course, it impresses one, let us put it so. He also approached the books as a scientist. That is, while at the hospital, he read the book Alatra several times and Ezeosmus a few times. He drew my attention to these books more than once and said that everything written in them is for real and that he had faced that. In that same Azosmos, real things are described in the form of imaginative writing. I mean about Kanduks, for example. If we take that same suicide topic, and we've actually touched upon it just now, there's a substitution in his consciousness. One can merely debate about what was it. Was it a mirage, a hallucination of some sort, arising from consciousness? 
Or did an intervention of the third force take place that substituted the picture? It's indeed the story of the traffic police officers that it's exactly on that place. He is not the first one. During a short period of time, a certain number of people died there. Of course. So, this leaves only two options. Either a mirage occasionally appears there, but a mirage can be seen on a certain location. It is seen by other people. And let's put it like this. A simple example, if I am driving one in the same road all the time and there is, well, say a certain group of people who are driving the same road at the same time, with minor addition of accidental drivers, right? So, if I know that there is a ravine there, my subconsciousness, even with my peripheral vision, I perceive it, because I know it's there, then suddenly it disappears, a road appears in its place and there appears a wooded area. Will it draw my attention? Of course. It certainly will. Why do other cars, as I have understood, there were enough cars on that road? Well, yes, sure. Why didn't other people see this mirage even once? And why didn't anyone describe it? The matter of mirage is secondary. And one more thing. During a short period of time, a number of people get off the road when they have passed the gas station prior to that. Yes, they all did. The road police said that all those cars that had crashed there, in that location, they all stopped at that gas station for refueling. Well, if they all drank coffee too, then we may contribute this to low-grade coffee or hallucinogens in the coffee. Hallucinogens dissolved in the coffee. Well, this information... But which can cause the same visions at that, though. These are two complex hallucinogens. That kind probably doesn't even exist. Well, or it works selectively. Some are affected, while others are not. Well, or some diuretic agents are added, yes? Meaning the ones that, well, such explanations can arise from consciousness. But what could it be in actual fact? Well, in actual fact, we can philosophize. But of course, to prove it, lay it on the table just like that for a skeptic and tell him, look, that's what it was. Well, it's a bit complicated. Based on statistics, we can assert only one thing, that at least 80% is inexplicable suicide. Yes. It's when absolutely normal people who suffered no depression, there were no signs of such a state. Well, nothing was abnormal. A person was making plans and then, for inexplicable reasons, he or she commits suicide. It means there is a certain, say, influence of something which causes an irresistible desire to do such things. This influence must be so strong that a person neglects, oversteps his self-preservation instinct, Right? And again, well, this statistics is inaccurate, much reduced in numbers as of today. As they say, a million and a hundred thousand people commit suicide annually. This number needs to be multiplied by four. Well, here we're dealing with hidden suicide. If we take the one that... These are unofficial statistics. As for suicide attempts, the number needs to be multiplied by ten. Well, naturally, of course. These are huge numbers. If we address the problems of suicide, there are cases in life when a person gets caught up in such conditions. Well, desperate ones. But there are very few of those in actual fact. Only 10 to 15 percent of people exhibited certain mental disorders. And it was not some severe depression, it was an adaptive one. 
An adaptive one, some sort of… Some situation. Yes. Adjustment disorder, stress. Absolutely right. Post-traumatic stress. Possibly psychogenic depression, at most. It is possible, but 80 to 85 percent are absolutely inexplicable cases. Yet they try to explain them. If we talk, then suddenly they tell that a person was depressed. But if we talk to close family members, then it turns out that a person was full of energy. He was making plans. He was going to bed, for example, in a great mood. There was no sign. And in the morning, they find him already. There is something interesting here, too. We are now sort of considering the phenomenon of suicide pretty much from the perspective of science. Yes, this phenomenon may be viewed even now from the perspective of culture, from the perspective of history. Yes, it may be construed differently, of course. Yes, but as a matter of fact, here it's also interesting to view this from the perspective of introduction of this concept into the culture and into our modern way of life, so to say, and... Well, naturally, from the least to the greatest, if we consider earlier times, such cases were extremely rare. And here we ought to give credit to the fact that at all times religion has been fighting against suicide very actively. And to this day, the Church exactly condemns suicide. They preach about it and give proper guidance. They fight against this phenomenon. But the trouble is that, after all, people were more faithful in earlier times. They listened to their spiritual mentors. Nowadays, people are losing faith, unfortunately in mass. This is really so. If we look at the historical aspect of this phenomenon, if we take, for example, the Western culture, then, in general, we can take the world as a whole. Until the second half of the 19th century, in the entire world, well, practically all over the world, there was an extremely negative attitude towards suicide. Even among people. But again, here it is necessary to give credit to the work of the Church. They cultivated this negative attitude. The person who committed suicide was not buried at a cemetery, and no funeral service was performed over him. It was shameful, contemptible. Not in all cultures, of course. That's true, but it was usually considered the intrigues of the devil and his servants. In fact, it's precisely so. And it has to do with mysticism and magic. Right. It was proclaimed that a human being is not inclined towards that. It is unnatural. The person committing a suicide goes against God. He or she betrays God. It means, he or she has been controlled by demons. Well, let's put it this way. That is, he or she has surrendered oneself to the demon's control. Observing the events that later on began to develop in our civilization, we arrived at a completely different conclusion. Since the second half of the 19th century, there began the process of liberalization of the attitude towards suicide and towards people who... But let's also note one point here. Because precisely at the same time, mass media began to develop as well. Yes. Well, everything started developing. Yes. A giant leap in science, technological progress started. The civilization clearly started following the path of... Of suicide. Yes. It started coming into fashion, so to say. But it began to be introduced. Let's even take the book The Sorrows of Young Werther. Yes, how many young lives it took with it. But even if we look at bare statistics, now suicide, at the age of somewhere from 14 to 35 years old, has gone up to the second position as the cause of death. 
But if the first cause of death is accidents, we know that most of these accidents are also hidden suicide. This is again hidden suicide. That is, it is the number one killer among youths and young adults in general. Let's have a look at statistics again. In fact, suicide is getting younger, and youth suicide prevails nowadays, even teenage one, than that of an older age. For example, people who have reached their declining age, we don't take euthanasia when a person has illnesses, and he or she simply asked for. We take cases when the younger the people committing suicide, the more suicides are committed. Why? Immature mental state. An unstable emotional environment. Yes, they are more labile. They're impulsive. They are more impulsive, inclined to imitation. Well, and there is a corresponding flow of information that somewhere someone has committed suicide. It's viewed that way from the psychology perspective. But in fact, the answer is very simple. For example, you like steak? Do you like it hot or cold? One that has been lying in a freezer? That was cooked yesterday? Hot, right? The younger, the more delicious. Here's the answer. It is just that someone wants to eat, and that's the whole trouble. But from the primordial knowledge perspective, those people who are younger have more strength, more energy, and it's exactly what those who hide in the shadows like to eat. But there is less knowledge, less experience. The instinct of self-preservation is less pronounced. Why do young people, let's say, change their opinion more often? They are more susceptible to indoctrination, to infusion of some ideas, because older people acquire more life experience. And consciousness already finds, picks keys to their personality. Well, as a good owner who's been keeping livestock for a long time, a cow, for instance, it knows how much milk to take, how much hay to give. But it's not the case with the young. They struggle for leadership. Primary consciousness fights with the secondary one. Personality breathes easily. Sometimes personality is drawn to God. A person is already inclined to some poetry, to something beautiful, to love. A person seeks a spiritual path, but consciousness wins and distracts him or her. And he or she slips down into sheer materialism. And here, if he or she has also seen some picture, well, I don't know, now there are a lot of different subcultures, such as those youngsters dressed in black, goths, they are already playing death. Emos. Exactly. Goths. goths. Say goths attract young people. There's such a picture immediately, there's a change of mood, and the like. But kids don't understand that they are controlled 100% by consciousness. That's exactly what deceives and picks the keys to their defense. It's like, I would say, a thief who has come to a safe with something good and tasty to eat in it, and he picks the most effective keys. That's it. Well, it's a mere tool. That's why the younger a person is, the more unstable he or she is. But why does all this happen? Because we have such an environment. Children are surrounded by the information field, and in the very light of the negative contemporary environment, there is no spirituality. It's been reduced to nothing. In best-case scenario, parents will take the child to a church on Easter to bless Paschas. It's become sort of a theatrical action. Go there, light a candle. The child doesn't see this as a path to God or something else. 
He doesn't speak with those very priests. And of the priests, who talks about anything bad? No one. They all talk about God. They give good guidance. But do we see a lot of young people in churches today who indeed come, who indeed talk? Very few. On the one hand, they seem to be reaching out. But on the other hand, they are more drawn to these emos, to cartoons, especially Japanese informational ones. And here it is very important again, we have talked about this more than once, that digital media, they do transmit, not even digital, but more like film or magnetic ones as before. They had the opportunity and transmitted information that is hidden from our eyes. If we take, for example, that very music, there is music that is written from consciousness. It is superficial. Let's say it's with a harmonic scale. It's interesting, but for some reason it does not enthrall the whole world, whereas there is music which is also written from consciousness, but it enthralls the whole world. It becomes a hit instantly. Why? Almost the same scale. Well, they were making something similar, a coincidence, a lucky break, or does someone need to hype it up? No. It is the information that is implanted there. The stronger the invested emotion, the stronger that very implanted picture, the faster it comes to life among the masses. That's all it is. In this whole secrecy, it is conveyed. Let's take those same Japanese cartoons. After all, this is not play of light. This is... Those who do this, they try to make it come alive. They create the image that they are experiencing, and we see it, like a good actor and a bad actor, a good artist, and a bad artist. Yes, how do they differ? They differ in the information that is embedded in the picture, don't they? I mean, this is really so. We listen to singers. You hear one, and you become one with him, and you reject the other one. Although he sings better, he sings more competently. He carries the tune, and it all happens that way. And we give preference exactly to which one, to the one who misses the pitch, whose voice is hoarse or something else. Well, he sings with his soul, as they say. So there is the one who sings with a soul, and there is one who sings without a soul. Well, this also has a huge effect here. Why? It's that very informational transfer, say, at a level beyond, which is exactly what we call metaphysics. Well, but this does exist, and we are able to transmit it, and we are able to perceive it, whatever it is called, but it does exist. Moreover, there are those who are able to consciously manage these illusions, which are imposed, and emotions and desires, which are literally imposed on people's consciousness. This is interference by third forces between the personality and consciousness. But as a rule, this is always catastrophic when it comes to interference at the level of higher dimensions, let's say. It comes through without any critical processing. Consciousness does not perceive it as a threat to itself. It just comes through directly. It's true. And here again, it's like it is described in Azosmos regarding kandugs. Well, whoever wants to read it, will read it. Those very kandugs, they really live off the powers that they consume from people. They steal, but they also have a whole network. They have both lemboys and clocktons. And... But we encounter these. Well, it can be done also from the perspective of science, yes. We can expose it, say, well, they have written this fiction, they observed, someone knows a little bit of psychology, and now they've put together such a picture, and so they present it this way. But until a person, say, approaches this exactly from a scientific perspective, begins to study and observe, 
or God forbid, like this fellow whom we talked about, an accident happens when he himself actually experiences this in practice in his life. He'll understand that there, say from the first to last page, is the reality of existence. This is experience. And this is what we don't see. A person won't perceive this. I would also like to talk about a phenomenon which actually absolutely everyone encounters at the daily level. When we visit places of mass gatherings of people, such as bazaars, supermarkets, some kind of mass events, in reality, now there are so many of these blessings, in quotation marks, that even when we meet at some family holidays or just with friends, we definitely run into people who, by definition, carry negative energy. Meaning, if in some places of mass gatherings you might be standing next to several people, there will be three or four of them there, but at the level of feelings we understand that I just don't want to be near this particular person. Here is the most banal example, the most common and understandable in this sense. These are post offices or banks. That's a classic. Yes, a classic of the genre. I don't know why, but Isnils are so fond of banks. They love post offices. They love lines at stores and always kick up a row for no reason at all. You are standing peacefully in line to pay a bill. Well, who hasn't encountered this? Well, yes. For as long as there are few people, no one is there. As soon as people have gathered, someone always comes. It doesn't have to be an old woman, as in the classics. Yes. Sometimes even young people come, kick up a row for no reason, rile the crowd up, put everyone off balance. Everyone just starts to get nervous. Ultimately, the one who started the scandal leaves happy. Everyone else is left sick. Yes. So, as you have mentioned, among friends, acquaintances, and so on, who does not know people who, when you meet, the first thing they start doing is loading their problems onto others, like a barge with sand, yes, until they sink. Yes. But in reality, they talk about their illnesses, talk about their problems, as if a person has nothing to talk about. Then he leaves in a good mood, because he has come sick. He talks like he is dying, how bad everything is, how he is tired of everything. Everybody else becomes sick. And here's another paradox, one needs time to recover afterwards. That is, well, consider you have lost a day. You feel bad, you are in a disgusting mood. Who hasn't encountered this, really? This may be explained from the standpoint of psychology, psychology tries to explain this. But in fact, people who underwent an Isnil's attack, they lost this period of time. They weren't living. What kind of spirituality is there to talk about, or anything else? Will a person think about God when he has a headache, when he feels bad, when he, his eyes do not look at anything? He is grey. Everything is in those hues like himself, in grey, I mean. Here, the mechanism is interesting as well. How it happens, when an Isnil activates, begins to attract attention to himself, begins to focus people's attention on problems and so on. The person who is listening to him, if he or she has succumbed to that influence, he or she begins to see pictures. Certainly, 
After all, pictures are exactly what is transferred over. Meaning, well, from the perspective of, say, medicine, mirror neurons unwittingly start to work. A person begins to imitate. Puts oneself in that place. Well, of course, imitation starts in the like, and he or she begins, as if on the basis of sympathy, as you say, the person puts oneself in that place and begins to feel the same thing. But in fact, the implanting is exactly what's happening, because this is a direct influence. The person who is telling about this, he has come in a normal mood and is working such an isno-like mood, in a witchy one, and he is merely encoding the rest, talking out of habit. And such people stand out everywhere. They are also in many families and the like. Those who live with them are exposed to these attacks, but to a lesser extent. But basically, they try to attack everybody, acquaintances, friends, whom especially. The less often they see one, the more they attack. Doctors and outpatient clinics. Yes, but doctors, it needs to be said, they develop immunity over time. That is, one can get used to anything. If we talk to doctors when people start complaining to them, it's one thing when a person comes and complains to the point. It's normal. But when an Isno comes, and all he starts doing is whining and trying to influence, well, we will not talk about the doctor's thoughts, but a very resistant reflex is developed against this. But still, these people have a greater impact on the cue to see the doctor than on the doctor himself. Although, especially clinics, these are favorite places of these people. By the way, the most paradoxical thing is that I have seen several times when they come, take turns, stand there for several hours, and they leave. And then leave. And this is an invariable picture. And they leave. They do not come inside. Because they do not need anything. And if one talks with this person, they do not know what they are doing. If we take the Kanduk system, the only ones there who know, these are Lemboys, right? These are his associates. These are the people who really study this as a science. This is for them. Well, a kind of that very magic, or whatever they call it. Because every Kandu, he makes up his own system. They don't have a common teaching or something else. Yes, they have tools, they use them, but the stories they make up are different. They start telling people that we are creating a secret order, there you will gain immortality, and everything else. You will command people. They really teach to influence people. The latter ones create their own commanders, and those commanders already recruit entire armies. And neither the commanders nor the army, they do not even know what is happening to them. And it's at the level of unconscious influence, meaning people do not realize what is happening to them. When they get tangled up in a Kanduk's web, whereas limb boys, those yes, they comprehend this science. Sometimes they might become Kanduks if they are not eaten in due time. By the way, this is a very good point you have touched upon just now, Igor Mihalovich. This is one of those very serious misconceptions people have regarding the activity, how a Kanduk acts. People, when they first come across this information, for example, one of their friends told them or they read a book, they immediately start looking for Kanduks among their acquaintances. Among the acquaintances, but they are not looking at themselves. Yes, and as a rule, a mother-in-law, this is 100% Kanduk. Well, this is a classic of the genre. Yes, well... But the mother-in-law has a different opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother-in-law's opinion is exactly the opposite. But what is the point? The point is that a real Kanduk, he or she acts absolutely differently. Of course, this might be a very pleasant person who might be out in the public. These people are often in the public eye. Or just the opposite. This is an absolutely private person whom nobody sees, nobody knows. And he, 
Depending again on his specialty, there are layers there too, whom they work with. Everywhere there are such, say, professional approaches and other subtleties, like any other work. Sometimes a pleasant person lives nearby, never anything bad from him. Nobody has heard a word, everybody adores him, he is the first to come to aid. But in actual fact, he has lived many lives already. This is not a human. And there are numerous corpses behind him. This is not a human, this is already… Yes, of course, but they are felt. Upon meeting such people, if someone is spiritually developed, they feel this other world, they feel this chill. You meet a person even if he is a complete atheist, even if he is like Billy Milligan, yes? With a bunch of sub-personalities and the like. But still, this is a human. Still, there is some kind of hope, some kind of life. But sometimes, well, if someone has met a hungry wolf, a very angry and hungry one, face to face, one will understand what I am talking about. Even though in appearance this is a pleasant person who is smiling. Yes. And of course, what is happening in general in society today, how much these creatures have propagated and how they are already… Yes, there's another nuance here. There is nothing human in them. For them, their attitude towards a human being is the same as a wild animal's attitude towards its food, towards that very… for that very wolf that I mentioned, towards that very hare. People for them are food, there can't be anything sacred, all the rest is games and guises. But guys, if we look, take off our mask a little bit and look at our attitude towards other people, because again, it's mostly consumerism, right? Well, all right, those with whom we have some common interests, relationships, doesn't matter, nice time spent together. Again, a little of personal pride or something else. Isn't this so? We still exploit each other. Do we not? We do. So Kandukes in this respect, they are even a little bit… More honest. More honest, yes. They are just eating, while we exploit each other. Actually, people should have a more spiritual relationship with each other. But, unfortunately, Today we have what we have. That's why we have so many suicides, because there are too many Kandukes. Why am I saying all this and have given this example? Because since ancient times, these very Kandukes have been also opposed by people, but by the people who worked on themselves, dedicated themselves, spent their time to protect people's backs. And in fact, until the middle of the 19th century, there were almost no Kandukes, meaning it was they existed, but these were isolated cases. It was, suicide was quite rare and the like. But there were those who did their job proficiently. Absolutely right. And then they died out. Today, there are many people who want to devote themselves to serving God, to resist evil. But everything ends with this desire only. People who oppose Kandukes until recently, they have been called Geliars. And of course, they had certain skills, they were much stronger. They had to be much stronger than their enemy in order to defeat him. 
And here it is very simple. When people hear, let's say, they read Azosmos, or hear somewhere about it a little bit in other stories, well, again, an image of a hero emerges, who possesses some secret knowledge. In fact, yes, they get this tool, because they have to resist magic only with a certain and greater power, right? But what does attract people? Only magic. What for? To strengthen their influence over their acquaintances. Well, isn't that so? Now we started with the fact that we manipulate each other. This is how it happens. That it is not the thirst for service that dominates in people, but the thirst for obtaining this secret knowledge so as to use these metaphysical abilities utilize them in order to subordinate and dominate. So that's the trouble we have. That's why there are so many kanduks. That's why cults for suicide are created and developed, as well as tourism. Yes, now it may be said that actually, as you have just said, since the middle of the 19th century, liberalization of the attitude towards suicide has started. Suicide is gradually becoming a mass phenomenon and a very serious surge. It began precisely in the second half of the 20th century. And what is the attitude of society? No attitude towards this. Yes. Moreover, it is now so popularized that not only suicide has become... It has become a certain cult. Yes, that is. Now it is not just perceived by people as a norm. And if, today we have already talked about Japan, right? Well, there it was something a little different initially. Well, yes. First of all, they have undergone an absolute substitution of concepts. Japan was isolated for a long time, and so they just formed such kind of their own culture, with their own attitude. But it is quite another matter, how it was used, and how it was developed. Yes, that is exactly what I mean. I follow the train of your thoughts. Just to what extent precisely in Japanese culture, all this skillfully juggling with concepts, literally within only half a century, what disastrous consequences all this has led to? Japan's trouble was that when it opened its borders to foreigners, you see, before foreigners were not allowed to enter Japan. But when Japan opened its borders to foreigners, when it, let's say, when an exchange of cultures occurred, well, that is where the most serious substitutions took place. Exactly those entered who were very fond of eating and a lot at that, such gourmets, so to say. And there, Harakiri and Seppuku, these notions already became completely twisted. In fact, if we take the time of their samurais, how many of these rituals a year were performed per population size? Only a few. It was the rarest occurrence. And how many of them are performed nowadays? One of the leading positions in the world. Absolutely right. Because the substitution has taken place precisely in the depth, in the structure itself. It is a radical substitution of the essence of this process. It has just become a convenient food. It is introduced in the culture, and they say, well, that's their culture. But the trouble is that a Kanduk has no nationality. The saddest thing here is that, having become a cultural phenomenon for Japan, all of it, let's say, is implemented in absolutely everything, starting from 
artworks, theatrical productions, feature films, and worst of all, cartoons. For children. Animation in which it is simply... Yes, animation for children, of course. It is just that implanting is taking place. But this is, again, what does this convey? Well, now psychologists also note that something goes wrong with children after their cartoon. Japanese anime. But this is not a trick of light or something else. I have watched the cartoons myself. And let's say, in every tenth cartoon, I say it approximately, there are implantations. There are indeed working implantations. That is, someone is doing it intentionally. These are not empty people. These are people who, not in words, but indeed, are familiar with metaphysics, who know how to control this. It's the same as some rock musicians who make implantations. When, such that, well, yes. What is it? It is a transnational phenomenon. Absolutely. We've touched upon Japanese anime, that is, animation. But as for music, it's international. Well, yes. And idols are created, pop culture. That's what I'm saying, too. Not all by far. But there are famous rock musicians who purposefully, intentionally create their compositions which are aimed specifically at implanting. The implantations in this case are precisely the programs that unfold in a person and cause various phenomena, meaning it is a direct, targeted manipulation. But in addition, we are also observing these phenomena when an idol for the youth is created. He or she evolves, is popularized. He is cultivated. Yes, he is cultivated and then he commits suicide. He is exalted as a hero, and the like. Yes, he is exalted as a hero. And here, it is easy to figure out from where the wind is blowing. The one who has been bringing him up, that is where the search should be carried out, because either a Lemboy or a Kandu, someone is near.
In actual fact, say, the direct work of Kanduks, it is rare. But today, it is unfortunately very powerful. It is when a direct influence of a Kanduk on, let's say, unconscious human actions take place. You can't even say that it's on subconsciousness. It is when such substitutions take place as the one with this road, that which we started today's program with. When a person, he really sees a different thing, he commits a different act, he does something good, but it turns out to be mortally dangerous for him. That is, this cannot even be called suicide. And here, certainly the problem is that the Church still has a negative attitude as well, and it does so correctly that it is negative, and it is deserved when it comes to suicide. But not everything is suicide, most of them are just victims. And here, on the contrary, there should be an effort by Church ministers, priests who should have helped them. In this case, this is far from always being suicide. Even people who have survived, who made suicide attempts that have not been crowned, thank God, with success. After all, when they are telling about it, people simply don't understand them. Sometimes even psychologists are baffled and try to explain that a person endeavors to hide his problem or does not open himself up. A person says, well, I didn't have any reason, just, I just did it. And he cannot explain why he did it. How many examples of such kind are there? Lots of them. I would put it like this. Let's take even the years of my work. Well, I am a doctor, like thousands of others, working in psychotherapy. And if now I start giving examples of these delusions, substitutions of reality in adults and children... The cameras will run out of electricity. I simply don't know when it will be finished. Quite right. When a child is seeing something totally different, while he is poking a nail into sockets... Yes, it's elementary. When a three-year-old child is descending from the fifth floor, but sees as if he only needs to put his foot on the sand, meaning it is close for him, this ground is totally near. Here it is, yes, and he simply takes a step. It's elementary, yes. But it is, thank God, that, as they say, angels catch him, and he survives, and he can tell what he has done. Otherwise, there would be nothing to tell, although this also puzzles people, and again, from the perspective of psychology, we think that a child is trying to deceive us. He is trying to justify his negative action. And we look for reasons, but where? With the parents, that the parents have mistreated him. That was the child's negative reaction. In actual fact, neither the parents nor anyone is to blame. Reasons may always be found if one wants... If there is a desire, if one looks for them, yes. This is how our consciousness works. It will always find an excuse for Kanduk's actions. This is true. Hey, by the way, since we have already switched to this topic, let's say, a classic pattern of Kanduk's actions, when he plans to feast, group suicide is committed. This is so. Or the sweetest, let us say so, feast for him is when there is a mother with a child. There are many cases like this. Either there are several children, or with a child, or when a woman is pregnant. Well, here we are again talking from the perspective of psychology about what? Hormones, postnatal depression, or hormonal changes during pregnancy. Or the person is unprepared for a change in her lifestyle and she ends her life with lethality, yes? Meaning, suicide. She performs actions that result in such a scenario. Or she has quarreled with her husband. Yes, or with the husband there are some... He has no job, cannot provide Of support. course, of course. Well, there are always excuses. While in actual fact, what happens often? Totally different things, yes. And we can give great many of such examples. Very many.
When it seems to a woman that she is saving the world, when something is burning, she saves her child, she throws him out, while in actual fact... Kids are thrown into an ice hole this way, as if being saved from fire. Quite right. This is real. There was such a patient. At that, those people are mentally healthy. What is this, a blackout or something else? They have not found any mental disorder after psychiatric examination. Absolutely right. But on the other hand, the mother is to blame. She has killed her child, right? Yes. She will be in prison, but who is actually to blame She will undergo this? compulsory medical treatment. She will be diagnosed with some psychiatric psychosis. She will be diagnosed at Absolutely least with something, right. although in actual fact, there is nothing there But in actual fact, this is a kandu, this is an implantation. But on the other hand, is the mother to blame? Yes, she is guilty of not developing spiritually. She is to blame, because people succumb to these influences all the time. enter the internet and then leave this world. Two 14-year-old girls having left dying notes jumped from the roof of the multi-story building. A mother has thrown herself out from the ninth floor together with two children. She has thrown boys from the balcony. A mother has killed her daughters and then jumped from the 30-meter height.
who, say in their life, hasn't been subjected to thoughts about suicide. It is impossible. All people have thought about it. These are implantations. This is exactly the work that goes on massively. Well, someone reacted, while someone didn't react. Well, they didn't react, so they didn't react. This is, you know, this is like a mass internet mailing. Well, those ads, whoever needed, reacted. So here, he who is weaker, reacted. Such a cheap way of mass effect, a massive feast, in reality. Or say, behind the wheel. Yes? Yes. Who hasn't thought, while sitting behind the wheel of a car, about driving out into oncoming traffic and hitting something? And what will happen with me? Who hasn't gotten such a thought, especially those who have some experience? Yes. Has it come to you? In the beginning, such thoughts come fairly often. During the teenage years, this subject is discussed among teenagers. These thoughts come to teenagers very often. When we began to study this subject in greater detail, I recalled even just my own experience. And really, about right after the secondary surge, after 12 years of age, these thoughts started. At first, they came from time to time, and then they were somewhat obsessive for a while. And we discussed all this with peers there. Well, thank God we didn't have social networks yet, with all these blessings. And by the way, as for social networks, is it possible to influence through social networks? It is possible. Yet, what's the difference? These are digital technologies. After all, everything goes over and everything works. Here's a simple example of our pyramid, yes? A positive effect. But pardon me, be that as it may, but over 98%, this is a positive effect that people felt. That's a fact. Among these 98%, there were people who were skeptical. But, nevertheless, they felt it. This is not a suggestion, this is not something else, because there was no influence, there wasn't anything. This was the real work of the pyramid. Thanks to André, his positive input, let's put it that way, that's a fact. And we have noted this, meaning this is experimental. That's why it all works, it all exists. As for social networks, well, what's the difference? Any information can be encoded in a sign, in that very writing and the like. Before, let's go back a little bit, say, to the prehistoric times. Well, it's a joke, of course. But what was a sign? A sign is a transfer of information, meaning the sign, it carried information. And it really influenced, it really worked. This is indeed so. Later on, we simplified it all a little, distorted it, and now we already have to write a lot in order to convey the necessary information. Well, and our life has become more difficult. There's a lot more to describe. That's why everything is so technical, so complicated. Before, it was simpler. The essence was there before. Transmission of exactly the main point that one wanted to convey. So then, again, one and the same sign, it conveyed a lot of various information depending on who placed it, how and for whom. But it is only a sign. Yet it was the carrier. But why was this all possible? Because people, they had not only analytical skills, meaning mental activity, but also perception through feelings. And they perceived it all at the level of feelings. And now our character script, meaning our written language that we read and write, this is precisely the process of superficial perception, meaning the work of consciousness. Erudition, maybe? Yes, it contributes to the development of our consciousness, and notably to its strengthening, but it needs to be developed. Again, consciousness may be tamed and may be trained, and it will only be your helper. 
Just watch it so it doesn't get into mischief. And take care that outsiders don't enter. Yes. Now, regarding the cars, I have tracked that information. In fact, there are a lot of these videos on YouTube where a driver, for unknown reasons, either drives under a train or drives off the road. At that, as a rule, his entire family is in the car. Or, as in that last video which I have seen, he goes to overtake a car, passes it, but doesn't return to his lane and just continues to head-on collision. Moreover, for quite a long time, meaning it was far from the oncoming vehicle, his wife shouted to him. At first, she was asking, what are you doing? And then, get off, get off, get off, as they were going. So they... So they arrived. This is also impossible to explain. What, a person was paralyzed with fear? And, but pardon me, where's the self-preservation instinct? Where's the sense of responsibility for the family? Yes. Any suicide leads to the fact that the person who committed suicide, he 100% becomes a sub-personality. Yes, it's true. There's no alternative. And his fate, it is extremely grave. Well, a sub-personality's fate is always grave. We were just talking about it, and we provided an example that is more clear to people. It's when a person is in such a comatose state, and as they say, he cannot do anything. But at the same time, consciousness is actively working. He feels that he exists, but the body does not obey. In reality, it's not a very pleasant state, what a subpersonality is. And the biggest trouble is that it really lasts for a long time for a very long time. It's not just for a human life. Recently, there also happened. If you don't mind, I will tell this story. It's relevant to our topic. An event happened. There was a murder with a subsequent suicide. A young man and a girl. If one views them from the social perspective, so to say, both are smart, promising young students. They studied at prestigious universities. Seemingly, everything was fine with them. But one day, the following happened. The young man came home, waited for the girl to return home. She came home, they lived together. They were not dating each other, but they lived together. So, he attacked the girl, hit her, and she lost consciousness. He raped her. After that, he attempted to strangle her. He was unable to strangle her, so he went, got a knife, stabbed her in the heart several times. And after the stabbing, he raped her once again. There. That said, he tried to cover her mouth so as not to hear her death rattle. In several hours, during these several hours, he slept and ate. He came back and for the third time he raped an already cold corpse. And in a few hours he committed suicide. Well, from the point of view of, well, let's say, science, this looks totally insane if one doesn't get to the bottom of what happened. The following happened. This girl, she was, let's say, she had a lot of material desires. It was these material desires that the Kanduk hooked her on. After that, since the guy, they had an unrequited love. 
That is, he thought that he loved that girl madly, but this was an implantation too. I mean, the Kanduk already made an implantation into this young man through her, through the girl as an intermediary. That is, she was manipulating him, particularly with her sexuality, meaning she was around him all the time, constantly reminding him of herself. But at the same time, she was turning him down. Moreover, she even tried to date his close friend. Just two weeks before the event, this guy started getting obsessive thoughts of murder. He constantly replayed these thoughts, these scenes. He replayed the scenario of this murder. And in the end, he decided to do it. And he did it in the way when a person receives a command, but again, a command from that same Kanduk, yet having still at least some power to resist, he or she will be mauling over not what, say, that same Kanduk wants, how to kill her, but he will weigh and deny it all. Again, returning to the question, who's never thought in life of how he or she would kill another person? These thoughts come to everyone like a TV program. It's just that not everyone opens them all out. Which kid hasn't thought about how they would kill their parents and so on? But this is deemed an improper thing to talk about. Everyone keeps it quiet, the society keeps silent about it. But every child experiences these moments. We must know this. Are these thoughts normal? No. Where do they come from? This is also a common field, let's say, an abnormal field from where these thoughts are imposed on everyone, but someone brings them to life. And in this case, well, I'm more than sure that if you have this guy undergo psychiatric assessment, he'll prove to be an absolutely healthy person. And here we can trace that. As I understand, he was using Instagram or something else, since you're telling us what he was thinking about and so on. Yes, there was a... There will definitely be a moment of his resistance when he doesn't want to, but he has to do it. And some force leads him and manipulates him. Here it is easy to track. And so the knowledge about those very Kandukes, about all these metaphysical, unreal, non-existent forces is a good weapon let's say, for those same psychiatrists. But priests know about them, not all of them, though, but they know that there are evil spirits out there, and they are fighting them to the extent of their capabilities. But the trouble is that young people don't go to church nowadays. They find their way to psychiatrists more often than to a priest for a confession, don't they? Of course. That's the trouble. What's interesting is that after the murder, after the second rape, he sat down at his computer and described everything that had happened to him very clearly on his social network page. I mean, due to the fact that he studied at a technical university, the guy was fairly smart, well-developed, and tended to analyze everything. That's why... He was still hanging on to his life. Right. In fact, it's... He resorted to, again, if he was a tech guy, his computer was for him like his helper, a way to defend himself. So he apparently tried to analyze what had happened and somehow to break free, because personality still fights to the last breath.
especially at such terrible moments. Yes. In fact, what he described, this is the first document for investigating by specialists. This is, in general, the proof of both the work and the existence of Kanduks. And, of course, it is also the cry of the personality that can no longer, roughly speaking, resist the Kanduks, but... A Kanduk is, indeed, a very powerful force. And to break free of his power, one must have both courage and strength just like always. The dogs again. If you don't mind, let's review this in detail. What was really happening? After all, until the moment he killed the girl, the personality still had a chance. It still had a chance to break free of the Kanduk's power and confront him. But, once he had already killed his victim, There was no turning back. Yes. He's already dead. It's one thing when a person... Well, it happens that people commit murder in self-defense. I mean, conflicts or military operations. But it's a different matter when a person, being under control of a certain power, being led by someone else's power, he performs this act. He is no longer alive. This is a hundred percent subpersonality. And it does not matter if he would have actually survived after this incident. This does not play a role already. He is already dead. Yes, this is already a shadow, not a human being. It's only a matter of time. Yes, when he hit the girl, she fainted, and he raped her for the first time. The Kanduk already started the process of devouring. Here, of course, he already started to eat. Here, the very outburst of sexual energy the redirection of this energy to the wrong side. Of course, it is already... It's not because he hit her. When he hit her, he could have still stopped. But after he hit her, and the act of violence took place, even before the moment he killed her, he was already doomed. And the second time, when he stabbed her several times, I mean, when he already inflicted fatal wounds and he raped her for the second time. Well, to think about it, well, there are people beasts that kill. For instance, Chikatilo, and experience sexual satisfaction. But this is not for normal people. Well, of course, and to experience sexual excitement while looking at... Of course, this must be a sociopath, and moreover a pronounced one, and with much experience. This is not some kind of an outbreak, and it would have been monitored throughout his life. Well, of course, it doesn't happen suddenly. It's a development. This is a beast. This is an inborn beast already long ago. Yes, and this was actually the moment of power, that is... When the victim dies, and the Kanduk... That was already the Kanduk. It was no longer a human being. Those were not his eyes, not his consciousness. It was the Kanduk who was enjoying through him already. The Kanduk was absorbing the last crumbs of life, taking away the last burst. And when he committed the act of violence, for the third time over, the already cold body, Here the act of violence was already not over the dead girl, but over the one who is in quotes, dead. Already over him. He was already mocking him. The Kanduk was already reveling in his own power. Well, that was a young Kanduk. An old, experienced one does not do that. Well, yes, and then... These are exactly those who still revel in the power, 
who still enjoy the power that they gained not so long ago. Meaning they don't show themselves much rage? No, no. Well, food is valuable to them. A Kanduk is really an ordinary person who becomes one by his own choice. He just falls into such circles, kind of practice in some kind of yoga, or in some sect, or in some secret group, studying secret learning, not even understanding what. He gradually gets involved in this circle. If he has certain talents, then naturally, say a departing Kandu may set sights on him and simply pass his knowledge on to him. He as if spreads a disease. But this cannot happen unwittingly. No, no, of course not. It cannot happen unconsciously. This is an affinity for magic. This is an affinity for influence. This is an affinity once again for the power, for secret power, for the most terrible power. But this is exactly what's promised to them. They are promised that conscious reincarnation which will happen. This is life eternal, as they are promised. But in reality, after reincarnation, a Kanduk remembers himself and has all his skills. That's a fact. Plus, a Kandu can also choose not just anything, but which vessel to move into. That's a fact too. But I know that some people who are watching now will say, well, that cannot be. Well, let's say I will believe them. But what about the reincarnation of that same Dalai Lama? He does not have this capacity of precisely a conscious reincarnation. He is thrown into a certain region and an area. This can be easily calculated. And a Kandu can be traced too. If one knows where he is and who he is, his body dies, then it's easy to figure out where he's going to enter into, because all this is limited to certain areas, time, and everything else. But the fact is that a child grows up with an old man's wisdom, with huge power. It is clear that he cannot use this power until the second surge, but he uses knowledge. Imagine yourself such a phenomenon, well, and I say it again, they are very easily felt, they are very easy to detect. So that's why only young and inexperienced Kandukes do such foolish acts. Those who are older and have gained experience, they keep a low profile, and they are not seen or heard. They are very friendly with their neighbors, these are very decent people. Often they start a family, wonderful people. But they still differ by the fact that they meet a large number of people. Because, like a spider, he builds out a whole web. He needs limboys. These are the ones who serve him. He enlists an entire group of them. Why? Because the very process of transition and childhood, it has to be nourished. And it is exactly then that his group works for him during this entire period of time. And limboys have to be loyal to the Kandu. His, so to say, trusted people who are feeding him with this very energy. It sounds like science fiction. Well, really, if you listen just like that, it's a fairy tale if it were not for real things that are behind it. And it is impossible to explain them otherwise, even from the perspective of science. But from the perspective of metaphysics, these are quite acceptable things. And from the perspective of knowledge, unfortunately, this is a prevailing problem now in society if we consider it this way. Because this is massive. There's a lot of this. Who hasn't come across those? A simple example here. Andre is right. Go to the market. How do you feel afterwards? You didn't talk to anyone. Just walked around and looked. You heard one person or another. A slight contact is enough. And if, God forbid, you opened up, then watch out. It might be even worse, because once again, he cannot influence a person. A person must open himself up to it. 
and a person, he is like a closed system. For some force to enter, he has to open up. But now, pardon me, you have mentioned the blue whale. Digital technologies, right? After all, there is no need to go to the store or to the bank to pay for something. And these are mass suicides. There you go. Mass ones. And they will be mass ones because this is absolute impunity. This is a feast. This is when not only a Kanduk is already partying, but his inner circle as well. This is in a literal sense of the word. And all this is justified and looks like someone wants to profit from it. Because suicide that is filmed, it attracts a lot of attention. And that's what is popularized. A justification can always be found for this, as we have talked about, right? But in fact, everything is far more serious. Unfortunately, it's a big trouble. But the biggest trouble here is that all of this is the result of humanity's spiritual decline. There may be very popular and very famous people who are full of the greatest ideas, the most noble ideas. In reality, this is an ordinary can-do, or vice versa. This is an absolutely private person whom no one sees or knows. He has lived more than one life already, and there are so many corpses behind him. Every Kanduk, he makes up his own system, starts telling people that we are creating, like a secret order. You will gain immortality there. You will command people. And they really teach to influence people. Those people create their own commanders, and those commanders already recruit entire armies. For them, their attitude towards a human being is the same as a wild animal's attitude towards its food. People are food to them. Who, say, in their life hasn't been subjected to thoughts of suicide? People constantly succumb to these influences. These are implantations. Whoever is weaker is the one who responds. The biggest problem here is that all of this is the result of spiritual decline of humanity. Meaning, people are, in reality, moving further away from God, moving away from the spiritual world. This is the truth. And people don't know who they will be. For them, perception of death, it is a kind of transition, a kind of a game. Consciousness tells everyone that, oh, when will that be? Will you die or will you not? You will definitely die, and very quickly. So, time is fast. About this guy, how it all ended. After committing this third rape, already of the corpse, then the Kanduk already started to play with him, meaning he started already to release him. This is seen just from what he wrote. That's one of the forms. Yes, he released him. He releases the personality and the latter is appalled by what's done, and then takes him back under control. And releases again. Absolutely right. And again. 
And so, so here there is a marked difference between people, say the very sociopath whom we were talking about, that this has to be a pronounced degenerate. Well, and he doesn't have lucid intervals. Well, and he doesn't have the struggle. He doesn't have struggle. He doesn't perceive Everything it. is cold and brutal there. Absolutely. Euphoria from power and that's it. Yes, they are born dead, but accidentally survived. And so he, an animal, is just an animal. It just acts this way. It doesn't have emotions or compassion, nothing. And here, pardon me, there is a game here. This is not the game in consciousness or fantasies. This is precisely the game of a third force. It often happens this way. There is a meaning to this game here. Surely, this is a mockery of spiritual powers. This is a direct mockery of the personality. This is... And the fate of this subpersonality. It is extremely sad. Why? Because it is already under the power of this Kanduk. Of course, it is already dead. And even being a subpersonality, it will continue feeding. Feeding him. This Kanduk. Yes, both the system and him. Yes, in essence, in this case, the Kanduk has eaten very heartily. Yes, by the way, you have said such a phrase that people, they don't stop and think about what will happen after death. That is, even up to the point that many don't even believe in it. I mean, what will be there? How is it there? Every human being believes in it, in death, purely theoretically. But we, as physicians, we have often encountered cases when a person is already, as they say, he already knows that he only has a day or two left, but he keeps making plans for years ahead. This is how consciousness works, isn't it? Yes. And this has been encountered so many times, all the more in your profession, when dealing with seriously ill people who know they will pass away. Still, what are they doing? They are making plans. Do any of them grab at the slightest salvation? at those perception through feelings, at spiritual things? Well, there are very few people who go to church, who invite priests in order to ease their sufferings at least a little bit, at least in the end, whereas others actually... They as if bury themselves in some of their everyday problems even deeper. In matter, absolutely right. Pointing fingers in the family and... Absolutely right. Moreover, they try, pardon me, to cause everybody to quarrel because they are already becoming a subpersonality. Whereas a subpersonality, it is always negative. They say good subpersonalities. But how is this possible? Subpersonalities cannot be good. Unfortunately, a subpersonality that is the entire negativism, all the sufferings that you have, it has passed into a different state. There is no body. There's another form of existence, but all the sufferings, all the emotions, and the entire negativism has remained, and it prevails. And this is, pardon me, not the Groundhog Day. These are new ordeals and sufferings every day, but this is that very negativism which is devouring a person for centuries. This is true. And this, by the way, is mentioned in all religions. People knew about this, but they talked and told this well, in such a let's say, an attempt to explain in three-dimensionality, that it does happen. They used allegories, and it is natural that... Yes, well, let's say here such an allegory is traced, an analogy as hot blazing fire. Definitely. And this is present in Islam, and this is present in Christianity as well. It is present everywhere.
Those very religions, they were not taken from out of nowhere. Religions that live for centuries, they are not made up by people. They are based on knowledge, on experience, and again, there are quite a lot of the very grains of truth in them. The fact that later on, over the years, all this turns into chaff, well, let's not talk about that. It is based precisely on the grains of truth and on real experience of people who lived through it all and who talked about it. In the state of subpersonality, it is, again, yes, pressure. Yes, in time, raging heat comes on. These are unbearable conditions. But again, there is intensification of negativity. Any subpersonality is in such unbearable conditions, not because it is a punishment. Such are the conditions of existence. And the most interesting point here is that, actually, any person, even at the level of consciousness, is right there. Deep inside, in his own mental baggage, he knows about it, but doesn't want to believe it. Although any person knows what it will end with, he doesn't believe that he will die, just because he knows that there is another form of existence, and he realizes that this existence is hellish. But this is advantageous to consciousness. For consciousness, it is prolongation of life. After all, consciousness doesn't feel pain and suffering. It is the personality that feels pain and sufferings as an emotion, which is transferred by consciousness. Consciousness is a program. A program doesn't feel anything. The only thing that is really alive in a person is, well, only the personality. And what is consciousness? A program. Actually, to convey to people what a subpersonality is, on the one hand, it is important. And the fellow who asked us today to film this program is right on the one hand. But on the other hand, it is not easy. Until people gain their own actual experience, a practical one, well, preferably timely one. But this can be gained only through spiritual development people will not understand what it is. It is extremely difficult to in some way persuade a modern human to engage in his spiritual development because he has too many distractions. But this point is very important, and it is important for people themselves. 
and many feel it and feel their desire for spiritual enlightenment, but the consciousness substitutes it all very quickly. Of course, it is a problem. If there had been some kind of a tool which would have allowed a person to be in this state of subpersonality just for a second, then I think a person would have devoted the rest of his life precisely and only exclusively to his spiritual development, because nothing can compare to that despair which people encounter in their after-death fate. Let me share an experience. Now, today, we have such a program. Not a very cheerful one. Well, yes, in fact. But it is necessary. Today, we have had such things here as the car accident and everything else. Eight years ago, two, rather, say, interesting occurrences took place in my life. Well, let's call them interesting in quotes. There are two, there were two car accidents. This is interesting, only for those who repair cars. Well, yes. At that, the interesting part was that those accidents happened nearly very close in time, that is, literally two months passed between the first and the second accident. While the first accident, it was, well, I can say, well, banal, in which sense? The weather was bad, there was an obstacle on the road, I was distracted a little, and basically only the car was damaged. Well, there was an obstacle. I turned the wheel and shot out into a ditch. I smashed the car. That was all. And there was no bodily injuries. So, in principle, I got off easy. Whereas the second accident, it surely drastically changed my life, right? And that experience, which I gained then, it, let's say, influenced my life. And I still recall it, but I have not told details of that accident to anyone except several people. And I even haven't told anything to my close friends and relatives. Because what I experienced in that accident, it certainly... It is significant. Yes, well, generally speaking, the second accident, it took place unlike the first one. If the first one took place in spring, the second one happened in summer. There was summer weather, everything was okay. My mother called me. My mom lived in the countryside at that time and asked me to visit her, to pick up the computer, the processing unit that had broken down. It wasn't difficult for me. It's not far from Kyiv. I got in the car and went to visit my mom after work. Well, I came there, it was already quite late, but the weather was excellent. It was summer, the sky was full of stars, everything, the road was dry. I talked to my mom. My sister was also at my mom's house. We sat with them there, chatted, well, as usual, how are you? How is your health? You know, for a mother, the most important thing is to make sure her son is healthy and everything's okay. So we talked, and I was already saying goodbye. I am walking out, taking the computer case, putting it in the car trunk, and suddenly a thing happened, which, later on, my sister was also astonished by this thing. And for me, when I was rewinding this moment, it was also kind of strange, let's say. It was significant. It was significant, yes. While saying goodbye to my sister and mother, I approached him and said, forgive me, if anything. And I got in the car, well, and left. And well, I was driving, and I drove through the village, got on the highway, 
and I was driving on. My father called me. He was in Kyiv at my place and was wondering when I would come home. Well, I said that I would be there soon because I had already left. Everything was fine. I had loaded the car. Everything was fine. I was driving. And literally, as soon as I finished the phone call, suddenly, rather extraordinary things started happening. Well, I was driving. Those who know a little bit about car brands, I was driving a new Subaru Tribeca, a four-wheel drive crossover. Well, certainly with lots of safety systems and a traction control system. And, well, it is now that I'm telling such a long story, while then... It took literally split seconds. So I finished the call and felt the rear of my car wobbling in the truest sense of the word. On dry asphalt. On dry asphalt, meaning it started wobbling on dry asphalt. Well, as if, well, I was acting instinctively, meaning literally there, I didn't even analyze, simply kind of understood there was a problem and pushed the brake pedal turned the wheel to the right and flew out into a ditch. That is, in the headlights, I saw bushes that were drawing nearer. I saw a ravine which I was flying into. I saw a tree, and there also arose such a thought, please, anything but the tree. And here it is, and I saw the bushes again. At first, I somehow didn't grasp it. I thought the bushes, somehow, had I flown out through the windshield or anything? And, well, I started kind of looking around. I saw, I was near the car. The car was smashed. My body was hanging on the safety belt. And the space was so, well, such a quiet state. No sounds. Silence, peace. It was nice. Well, I mean, it was indeed nice. Colors were a little unusual, but... There was another interesting fact. Whatever attracted, say, my attention, it as if gravitated to me, meaning it was, well, you know, as if zoomed in. I don't know. Well, no matter where you look, it is as if, well, such an unusual perception. And the next moment, I saw a car moving towards the accident site. I was somehow surprised, too. I was in the ditch. How could this be? Well, meaning there, pardon me, there was about a five-meter height. Yes, there was a height difference there, and the car was moving. I saw the car plate number. I still remember it, that number. I know the car brand, but the most paradoxical thing, which was also astonishing for me then, is the people who were sitting in the car. I also knew them. That is, I knew their names. They were not my acquaintances. I knew their names. I knew that they were spouses. I knew where they lived. I knew where they worked and their positions. I knew who their children were and what their names were. The car approached. The man ran out. He started descending into the ravine towards me. While descending, he shouted to his wife to call the police and ambulance. He opened the door, unfastened the seatbelt, and pulled me out of the car, then laid me down on the grass. His wife was already coming down with a first aid kit. So he measured my pulse, turned to her, and said in such a way, well, he said, probably an ambulance won't be needed because there is no pulse. I was so surprised. Well, yes, there was no pulse. Well, so 
Yet why were they bothering with this body? Well, somehow there was such a, do you know, what was also striking, an absolute indifference towards the body. An indifferent attitude towards one's own body. That is, well, it was, well, as if, well, as if you don't regard it as yourself, like an ordinary life, yes. She approached, and I knew she was a medic, and she said to him, Wait, we should do artificial respiration and a closed chest heart massage. But then the picture abruptly changes. I find myself in a totally different space, and I start feeling all my relatives, all my friends. I felt my girlfriend, whom I was dating at the time, and the feeling was quite unusual. Because, you know, what this may be compared to, it may be compared to a state when you are, say, in a dark room with somebody, with the one whom you know very well, and say you are sitting side by side. You know that this person is near, but you don't see him or her, because there is no light at all. That is, well, as if, and you know, there is such a... You have nothing to look with, for there is no body. Well, all that is... So, such a paradoxical situation, of course, completely. And what did I feel? I felt where they were. I felt what they were doing. I felt what they were thinking about. But in a short while, I realized the thing very unpleasant to me at that moment. I understood that absolutely none of them felt and knew what was happening to me then. Nobody knew that I needed their help at the moment. Also, there was such a moment. They were as if near, but as if behind a thin film. Meaning this space, it is as if, well, how should I put it? It is kind of small, but the film, it doesn't allow a possibility of this contact. And I would have reached for them, well, you know, somehow. I would have reached for them with something, but there was nothing to reach with. And also at this moment for me, the most, what hurt the most then was that the one who had sworn she had loved me, she was busy with another guy. And at that moment, I was seized with such, you know, a sense of such grievance and anger that, well, how could this be? From this moment on, something unbelievable started happening. This emotional pressure and anger, they started simply smearing me, meaning, you know, as if I was driven in some little box and being pressed from all sides. Well, this is when, let's say, well, what can this be compared to when Say, a mother is making dough and she takes a rolling pin and rolls the dough out, right? So in that situation, I felt myself as that little piece of dough which is being rolled out with such a rolling pin. It is just that. If there was a body, it would have been grinded into dust for sure. But there was no body. And this state of despair, of the increase of this negativity, anger, resentment, it was simply suffocating, and there was no way out. Well, let's suppose you know an anesthetic may be given. You can conk out. Let's suppose somewhere, well, if there are any, whereas here there is pain which you cannot escape. You want to. You, you try. Well, how? But you have nowhere to. And an understanding came that nobody can help, which was the most terrible thing that nobody can help. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And at this moment, the picture abruptly changes again. 
and back near the car and behind the man's back. I see him giving me a heart massage. But again, it was interesting too. I was standing behind his back and saw his hands massaging me. Well, the body, yes. And I saw further, I saw the heart which was contracting and the blood which was circulating through my body. In about another second, I twitch of acute pain in the chest, and after another pressing, I feel, I open my eyes, I see him, I call him by his name. This certainly surprised him a great deal. I say, that's all, enough, enough. And he helps me sit up and says to his wife, Oh, thank God, he's alive. A police car came, an ambulance car arrived. I was taken to a hospital. They performed an electrocardiogram on me and told me I had a cardiac arrest because when I was driving the car, I set my seat in a wrong position. An airbag hit me in the face and I struck my chest against the wheel. They also took reflex. reflex cardiac arrest. Yes. They also took my blood to test for the presence of narcotic and alcoholic substances. Well, that was requested by police officers for the car accident report. I called my friends, called the insurance company. A man in the insurance company, whom I had met at the time of the previous accident, he thought I was playing a joke on him, meaning literally recently we had talked with him, and he had insured this car, and so he said, I don't believe it. I say, well, come over. I say, you'll see. The towing truck came, they loaded the car, my friends took me home, drove me to Kiev, and also there was this astonishing moment, the insurance company appraiser, this was already afterwards when he was inspecting my car. When he saw the first phrase, he walks up to the car all brisk and asks, says, has anyone in the car survived? I said, yes, I am the driver. And he, he just faltered and like somehow with this subject there, decided not to expound on it. There, I came home that evening and I didn't tell anyone, either my father or my mom, I didn't tell them absolutely anything about what had happened to me. I didn't call my girlfriend. So, that evening... But she was busy anyway. Well, yes. That evening, enormous changes took place inside of me. I mean, that evening I made a serious decision to work on my spiritual development. This experience of subpersonality, as Igor Mikhailovich later told me, it dotted all the eyes. I just didn't want to play with these illusions of this world anymore. And, well, well, how long did I spend there? I mean, it was just a moment. But millennia of such a state, when these emotions press down, suffocate you, and there's nowhere to hide, and nobody can help you. Well, like, somehow, I don't want to experience that anymore. Well, so basically, well, naturally, I parted ways with my girlfriend. The next day, I had an urge to see those people who had saved me. So, because there was such an interesting point there, too, when it was all happening, I felt from these 
people that they had really wanted to help me, so that these people, they are worrying about me, they are fighting for my life. Well, such a, some kind of warmth. And moreover, that information that I knew everything about them, well, you know, like close acquaintances about whom you know everything. When I, I knew where they lived, and I knew that despite the fact that it was a weekday, they would be home that day. When I came over, they were very surprised, of course. So, but they were even more surprised when I told them where things were in their home, where something was, where they kept tools. Well, I mean, I fully knew the location of all items, and we talked with them for a long time. It was a fairly heart-to-heart -heart conversation, and I even knew what's most interesting that I knew about about them, even those things that they were hiding from each other. I mean, later, I, well, let's put it this way, a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. I hope you didn't give away. Of course, when I spoke to them one-on-one, -on -one, well, I just mentioned to them, and they just, well, they were surprised, and I felt such a kinship, it's amazing, with strangers, such a... I felt such a kinship, and I had an urge to invite them to my home, and they as well. Basically, they were also very interested in what I do, where I live. So, and the next day, they came to visit me. Of course, we still continued seeing each other for a few years until they moved. So, but I, I advertised our relationship neither to friends nor to my parents. Well, this would have baffled them, and greatly baffled. For me, this was a kind of an escape, because I didn't want to talk about this kind of thing with anyone. Well, yes, yet you were able to talk to them on this subject, because they knew everything about you also. Yes, so, and this became a turning point in my life, of course. This experience, these moments, they put everything in its rightful place. On the one hand, this is a good experience, because it forced you to work on yourself. But on the other hand, I wouldn't wish such an experience to anyone, even one which would force you to engage in spiritual development. This, of course, is not great. And of course, the saddest thing about all this, it is comprehension of helplessness. But in actual fact, when our relatives or acquaintances pass away, we also still, even being alive, we feel them. We understand on that, again, far-off perspective. After all, these connections of perception or they may be called metaphysical, no matter how we call them, interactions. But the correct way, this is informational interaction. And there's nothing difficult here. But for people, this is a little hard. People feel this interconnection, and people feel that they owe something, like some kind of burden of debt, some kind of responsibility to their dead relatives, and there is a desire and an aspiration to help them. And for some reason, many people strive to pray for forgiveness of their soul or something else to save them. This is impossible. Dead is dead. You cannot make the dead become alive. Yet, people invest enormous powers, spend their spiritual powers on those needs of these dead. On the one hand, it is understandable that both ritualism and, say, culture, it obliges, it ties us. On the other hand, we feel this need. 
But, unfortunately, people have lost an understanding of how to do this in the right way and without risk to themselves. Because, since the dawn of time, it has been said that you should not be friends with the dead, you need to let them go. But this is not in our culture, just as it is not in the cultures of many people. There are ethnic groups where they wash the predecessor's bones and commemorate them almost every month and the like. But this is predicated on precisely the fact that people try to instill it in their descendants so that they would later commemorate them too. Because these commemorations, emotional upheaval, performance of certain rituals, it is precisely what palliates those subpersonality states. This heat stops blazing, the pressure stops, well, and as they say, the hungry one is sated. But one should understand that when we are emotional, when we experience, well, kind of our affinal relationships or recall our dead, at that time we are giving them our life. This doesn't mean that our earthly days will diminish, no, but our chances to take a place next to them increase exponentially. Here, there's also such a point very, very delicate, let's say. By the way, as for what you said just now, take a place next to them. Even in the book Life After Death it is described that those people who during their life were drawn to the dead and communicated with them, they would exactly stay by them. That's natural. If they had spent a greater part of their life precisely on this. Well, this doesn't mean a greater part of their life, because, in actual fact, even by rarely recalling our departed relatives or close ones, we give them a part of our life, because we are interconnected with them. This is like pouring from a full vessel into an empty one. It goes drop by drop, but it pours out, and we can't get it back. There. So, that's the trouble. And there is mention of this also in many religions, and it was spoken of. That's why, say, such a necessity arose, and even in antiquity, the priests, they took on the responsibility of kind of praying for the departed ones to make it easier for them, to free people of this burden. Well, again, if we analyze, for example, even to pray, well, who is he praying for? For someone whom he doesn't know, but based on an assumption that God will figure it out. Well, what does God have to do with the dead? The God of the dead is Satan, and not even one person, having become a sub-personality, has left his house yet. This should be understood also. God is alive. He is God of the living. He is not God of the dead. But people, even while resorting, say, to certain rituals or some kind of traditional actions, they understand that they are not providing alleviation by this. And so, there remains this feeling of guilt, some kind of incompleteness. Of course, we try to get away from all this psychologically, to not think. But still, this certain interconnection, it remains. Everybody experiences this. It is subtle, but it's there. And so, on this subtle connection, precisely drop by drop, like, say, at dawn in the summer, drops of dew gather on the web, so does life. It flows away. This is also bad. But on the other hand, it's impossible not to recall because we are interconnected. 
Like Andre shared in his experience, he felt this greatly, and he needed this help. And the understanding that our dear ones, close to us people, who have departed for there, they end up in such a situation, experience that which is impossible to experience here, and they need our help. And we do want to help, of course, but we often take incorrect actions here, also erroneous. The issue is acute. This is a serious issue. The issue of death, in general, actually concerns absolutely everyone, even if we look at our society. This is inevitable. Even, yes, even the most invertebrate or incorrigible atheists, after all, they still go to cemeteries on Easter holidays together with everybody else. They clean graves. Yes, they commemorate their close ones. Of course, but people don't even feel how their life is flowing down to the dead. Yes, this is so. Five years ago, when he told us the information about how we could help the dead, but at the same time... To preserve life. To preserve life, yes, and not to share life, but at the same time to render them a little. Let's say, well, help. But again, if we look deeper into what you are talking about, this provides temporary relief for them. It's the same as feeding a hungry person to satiety, but he will still get hungry anyway. And a human being is not eternal here. Subpersonalities exist for centuries, while a human being exists for years. This should be understood as well. Yes, certainly, we cannot ease their fate. But on the other hand, in subpersonalities' understanding, such help rendered to them is like... It is valuable. It's a complete rest. Yes, for them it is surely very powerful. A week of rest from hell, exactly. And I would like to share, a year and a half ago, my grandmother and grandfather died, two months apart. When the grandmother died, it was rather difficult, that is, a pressure was felt and... An interconnection. Yes, 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 and in actual fact, when I started experiencing this, well, these visits, including those in my sleep, that is, the subpersonality began to remind of itself. Well, of course, because it clings. Of course. Here, Andre also told about a desire to cling, to reach out to relatives, to close people, because it's the only thing that connects one with life. Therefore, a person, while being in the state of subpersonality, especially in transition, he tries to reach out. But when there is no understanding, no knowledge, he does not know how to do this. But the informational exchange, it does continue. That's why people feel this attachment and they feel longing for help. They feel that they are obliged to help, but they don't know how to do it, how to indeed render really effective help. And here it happens, so that they resort to natural rituals, to what we usually do. But it's the same thing as giving a candy to a hungry person, to the one who is dying of starvation. You will whet his appetite, but won't satiate him. And this is also true, and both the help is worthless, and you lose a lot yourself. He ends up with a candy, but it doesn't solve the needed problem. But for us, we give away a lot. This candy is life. Yes, and there was such a thing as you were saying. This is, first of all, pressure, and secondly, it's this feeling of guilt like... The feeling of guilt. Yes, the feeling of guilt and duty. It's as if I owe something, and I'm not giving it in full. And then I recall the information which you had told us. 
That is, how to help, and I did what you had told us. And, indeed, I immediately gained relief, meaning it is an absolute, it is a striking, well, it's just such a difference. I mean, it is such a sensation, you know, as if I had been carrying, I don't know, well, a huge 200 kilogram stone and then dropped it. Moreover, after a certain while, I also had such a, this may be compared, a feeling came, like gratitude. It is natural. I cannot explain this well, you know, as if I felt words of gratitude. And when my grandfather died, it was clear he was dying. I helped him, facilitated that very transition for him. This is the most difficult part. Yes. The awareness of the fact that you died. Certainly. At this moment, help, it is very important, needed, but it... A person died anyway, while for a living one, this is a danger, and that's wrong. However, on the other hand, we have raised such a subject. It's better to live, it's better to engage in spiritual development and not to die. It is truly better, and it is easy, and it is real. Gaining life is very simple. One should just reject death and start living. One should not scatter one's attention just anywhere, should not feed kanduks and other evil spirits. One should not yield to provocations of one's consciousness, but instead put that valuable and important, put those vital powers precisely into life. If a person doesn't start living here, he won't start there. This is already useless. So, let's live, guys. And, in conclusion, I would like to address, to take this opportunity, I certainly apologize for such a change of subject, but for us, this is important. In which sense? In the previous programs, we raised the issue of the Omnipotence Treatise by Baraka, and we also mentioned the treatise on eternity by Sufi Aliyar. It is now in front of you. The thing is that, as we have managed to find out, three witnesses saw Baraka's treatise in June of 1941, right before the unsealing of Tamerlane's tomb. For the second time, it was already seen by four people, and they left a detailed description of their testimonies, and they confirmed that they had indeed met descendants of Baraka himself and they indeed saw the book being kept by these people in good condition, which was the actual manuscript of the Omnipotence Treatise by Bereka himself. We have a request, because today we have neither the opportunity nor the time to engage in the search of this treatise. We would only like to compare the difference in descriptions in Aliyar's treatise and in Baraka's treatise, that is, to compare the text versions. It is interesting to see what changes have been made upon verbal transmission after a few centuries. Well, it's a mere scientific interest in seeing how our consciousness is able to substitute and change even such valuable knowledge. If anyone can help, that would be great. 
and so we have taken this opportunity to address you. Maybe, indeed, after all, we have people in different countries. Maybe someone knows, maybe, who knows, somebody's family is just the one that keeps Baraka's treatise, and that it is interesting to compare what Sufi Aliyar added over that period of time. This is really interesting. I think this will be interesting, not only for us, but also for those who currently possess the treatise. Moreover, another point is very interesting. It is known for certain that Bereka's Omnipotence treatise itself, it was, well, let's say, taken away and is actually inaccessible to people, which evidences that there was a copy. Yet, who made this copy? Bereka or already Tamerlane? The fact that it was precisely Bereka's treatise in 1941 and in 1942 has been confirmed. It is confirmed by exactly the same words which are written there, that when Tamerlane's tomb is unsealed, the war will begin. The same thing is written here, precisely in Sufi Aliyar's text. Everything is word for word, and there are some other points. We will leave them off screen in order not to make them public. This is sort of, for those who know, and possess the treatise, we will find a common language, and we will compare by words from here and from there, in order to facilitate, let's say, our meeting. Therefore, the fact that either a copy or the original text is in somebody's hands is guaranteed. And, obviously, it is preserved with care by Baraka's descendants. It is impossible not to preserve such works. Yes, unfortunately, this treatise by Sufi Aliyar, it has suffered a little damage. However, through no fault of people, but exactly due to accidents that are, let's say, beyond people's control. Yet, thank God it contains all of the information it has been preserved. It has been protected. Therefore, we can compare and carry out a certain analysis. What has been lost, what has remained, and what has been added. And this way we can estimate, at least approximately, how many and which exactly amendments were made between Aliyars and Bereki before he wrote his text. How many amendments were made to Bereki's treatise itself upon verbal transmission, and what caused this very substitution, how this transformation took place. This is very interesting, as well as what was missed at which stage by humanity that, as a result, they changed God for the devil. This is important. Once we know the details, we will possibly understand the other ones. Thank you very much, friends. We apologize for today's program. It has been a little hard. But the truth, it is always hard. But it always has a meaning. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
Frankly speaking, I don't like this subject. It is simple, awfully simple. Don't betray God, and this won't concern you. But for people, this subject is valuable and important. And I understand this too. People's heroic feats, how they overcame these resistances of the system. After all, as a matter of fact, we know plenty of such cases as well. Let's say, even from this experience of staying here, they are numerous. When people don't give up, when ordinary people, just ordinary people, they oppose Kanduks and rather serious ones. And they succeed. If a person is spiritually developed, a Kanduk won't attack him. Whereas, if a person is weak and a young Kanduk is attacking due to lack of experience, it is possible to fight him off. But if a really experienced Kanduk is attacking, this is unrealistic. He will take. He always takes what he wants. The only way is to leave completely, to give oneself entirely to God. This is the only salvation. But again, one should understand and evaluate this case. A personality should at least possess at least some freedom, at least some... Something should serve as some positive impulse at least. But if there's no such impulse, what then? Say, today we have been discussing the example of a boy and a girl. After all, literally speaking, not only did he eat them, but he also was mocking. He was demonstrating his own power. He was reveling in his power. Well, how's that? The main thing is not to give in. That's okay. Let's think about good things and act right. Then this won't concern us.